0: Thank you, Audrey. Well, how are you? Let me ask uh, probably uh, one of the most divisive questions I could ask this morning. Is it warm in here? (laughs) (laughs) How many say it's too warm? How many say it's just perfect? All right, I'm not touching it. (laughs) Ah, I remember uh, one of our deacons years ago in a meeting saying, the battle in the home is over the thermostat. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of crazy. I guess it's one of the indicatives of being a first world, huh? And a very much a first world problem. Well, hey, I want to thank each of you who participated in the Psalms artistic uh, ministry uh, and for making yourself vulnerable and uh, doing something that would be an artistic expression of the Psalms and for the way those are out there in the hallway. And thank you, Stephen, for coming up with that. Um, It never enters my head to do stuff like that. Um, But I am so grateful for those of you that God has made that way because um, just going down the hallway and looking at those different things and pausing, and I have the benefit of doing it when there's nobody around. um, It's just good for the soul. It's really good for the soul. And uh, by the way, you can come when nobody's around too. Just let us know if you want to have an experience of just going down and seeing those and letting the Lord use artistic expressions to flesh out some of the Psalms. But uh, I just want to thank you for, for doing that. Um, this morning, uh, well, last week, we looked at one of the Psalms that was a prayer of David of when he was in a desert place through no fault of his own, not that David was perfect, but he was just in one of those places in life where it seems like no matter what he did, it didn't bring any resolution. In his case, he was a hunted man as King Saul was hunting him, and, uh, and there's so many applications to that in our own lives of those, of those seasons where it's just dry And uh, it seems like no matter what we do, it stays dry. And uh, and that amazing Psalm, Psalm 142, of him complaining to the Lord while also expressing a confidence in the Lord's bounty in a very, very desolate, desolate place in this world. Uh, This morning I thought it would be good to go to the other side And that is where we are in deserts, but we're in a desert because of our choices. It is a desert of our own making because of our rejection of God's ways, our sinfulness, and uh, because that is a common thing that we all share, right? This is a common reality that we all share. We are sinners and we sin, I thought it would be good to look at a psalm that comes out of a heart of one who has been confronted with their sinfulness and and the response to that, because there's all kinds of questions that, that come up when we're confronted with our sin. For example, how are we to see our sin? Even below that, why do we sin? And how do we deal with the sources of sin in our life? And what's the appropriate response when we are uh, come to face-to-face with the ugliness of our sin? And of course, where is God in all of that? That's the best news of all, actually. Where is God in all of that? So uh, grab something and turn over to Psalm 51, probably one of the most well-known uh, psalms. In fact, uh, in our prayer time this morning, uh, one of the folks praying uh, prayed, God, if I only could have one chapter in all the Bible, this would be it, uh, just because of the role that this chapter has played in their life. I'd never thought about that, but it's great to pray with people because then you start thinking about all kinds of things you never thought about that are really important to, to think about. But Psalm 51, and, um, and, uh, and you'll see there in Psalm 51, you'll see… Now, in your Bibles, you may have titles that are put there by the translators, but there is a a subscript there. And in this case, it says, For the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, you need to know that those those go way back. Uh, They may have been put into the Psalms shortly after they were written. In the Hebrew Psalm book, actually, they're the first verse oftentimes, and so they're not like the titles that are put on there by the translators in modern translations. These go way back historically, and they give us a lot of the context when they are given to us. And so, in this particular case, we see this is a Psalm of David, just as the Psalm 142 was last week, but very different circumstances, because this is after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan concerning his sin, namely his going in to Bathsheba. And there's a very graphic picture there. Nathan came into him to confront his sin because he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, let me just give you a little bit of background to this without going into a ton of details. And I would encourage you to read through 2 Samuel's chapter 11 and 12, because there's a lot to learn about sin and our proclivity to sin and what happens when we sin from those two chapters, but uh, we just don't have the time to deal with that this morning. So here's the deal. King David is king. He's no longer a hunted man as he was last week in Psalm 142. He's king. He's leading his soldiers out to battle. They are being victorious every time. He is begging God for wisdom often in those battles. God will tell him what to do. He does it. They win the battles often when all the odds are against them. He's also shown uh, kindness to Saul's um, grandson, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and has brought him in under his care. I mean, it just seems like everything's clicking along on all eight cylinders as he's walking with God. And when you come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, the first verse, it says this. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, he was his head military guy, and his servants with him in all Israel. But David remained at Jerusalem. And what David begins to experience is how when you do not follow the Lord, sometimes in areas where it wouldn't seem like a big deal. I mean, I can see where David might have had an entitlement mentality. Maybe the jingle that McDonald's came up with in what the early 70s was going through his head. I deserve a break today. I deserve a break this military season. I'm going to stay home and send them out. That was never God's will for him. This is a side note. I've always wondered what would happen if our presidents had to lead our soldiers into battle. If they had a little skin in the game. You ever wonder how that might change things? Anyway, that's a whole other subject. He may have very well had a sense of entitlement, and he stayed home when he should have gone out, and and, and he makes himself susceptible then to a further decline into other sins that get more grievous at each level. So, he's out on his roof one day, night, I don't know what it was. He looks down onto another rooftop, and there is a woman bathing. Rather than turning away, he watches. He likes what he sees. He's king. He sends some people to find out who she is, finds out that it's Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah. Uriah is one of his choice 70 men. This would be like the president's own. That doesn't stop him. A man who had fought with him and stuck up for him and protected him, he sends for Bathsheba. She comes, he goes into her, she conceives. Rather than owning up to his sin, he begins a cover-up. He sends for Uriah to come back from the battle front. Uriah comes back from the battlefront. He says, Uriah, go down and spend some time with your wife. Uriah says, uh, no, King David. Joab the commander and all my fellow soldiers and the Ark of the Covenant are sleeping under the stars. I'm not going to take advantage of this situation and enjoy things they can't enjoy. So he sleeps outside the door. Well, David realizes that here's a man of great integrity and character, and so seemingly the next night or sometime pretty quickly after that, he has him at his dinner table and he gets him drunk with alcohol, and he's hoping that in his intoxicated state, with his spiritual and character senses numbed, that he would go down, and that the cover up would be complete. Uriah has character, no matter how intoxicated he is, he does not go down. And so David realizes that this isn't going to work, and so he sends Uriah back to the battlefront, and Uriah carries a note with him. He doesn't know what is in this note, but this note is a note to Joab the commander and giving instructions to put Uriah right up in the front, and when the battle is intense, everybody to back away so Uriah will be put to death. Joab does that. And Uriah is killed. And we read then these words. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the matter that David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And God in His great love sent the prophet Nathan in to confront King David. That's no small task. And David and, and uh, Uriah came in, uh, Nathan came in to David, and rather than just pointing out his sin, he tells him a parable about how somebody who had everything Takes from a poor person who only had one. And it incites the sense of justice in David's heart. And he becomes angry. As a side note to that, that was the Sunday school lesson for our children a couple of weeks ago. And Camilla, who teaches, what do you teach, five? Four and five year olds? Five and six year olds. When she told that story to the kids, they became angry. Good job, parents, for teaching a sense of justice and cultivating that that's written on our hearts. And when David was so angry, Nathan pointed his finger at David and says, Thou art the man. You are the one who had everything and you took from a wife who only had one husband. And with that... David comes, and he sees his sin for what it is, and he breaks. Now, Nathan went on to say a lot more things, which I wish we had time to read, but we just don't, about how God said, I gave you this, I gave you this, I gave you this, I gave you this, I made you this, I made you this, I made you this. If you lacked anything else, I would have given it to you. why did you so hate me that you went out going after things in your own power and strength? And he listed off some judgments and consequences. And it says that David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, there were some other consequences to this. But he would not be personally put to death. Now, what happens and how should we see our sin when we sin? and where is God in all of this? Well, it'd be nice if if that statement was as simple and clean as it is, as it was meant to be. Wouldn't it be nice if we can just say, I sinned against you, Lord, and to hear God say, oh, I've put away your sins from you. Psalm 51 is the Messiness of the heart response that that simple verse captures, because it is not neat. True repentance, true brokenness, true receiving and recognizing who God is and His disposition of loving kindness and cleansing towards us is messy. In fact, I picture it as a plate of spaghetti messy. And that's part of the challenge when we come to Psalm 51, because in Psalm 51, I mean, I went about crazy trying to outline this chapter. It's like trying to outline spaghetti. Because that's the consternation, that's the mixed-upness of a heart when it comes face to face with our sin and the loving kindness and compassion of God towards us. It's a messy deal because you got the spaghetti of our sin and and what we have done and who it was against. And then you got kind of the meat sauce of God's loving kindness and His compassion. And so let's spend some time going through this because we have all been there and we will be there again. And it's just important that we do not simplify it to saying, God, I sinned against you, forgive me and we go on like it was a speed bump. True repentance brings transformation. It brings a greater sense of who we are and who God is. And David is experiencing that as he goes through Psalm 51. Now, I'm just going to read through the verse, first six verses, and, uh, and we're going to look at those because actually that kind of captures the main chunks of this and then the rest of it's just kind of the spaghetti mess of what flows out of David's heart. And I'll be honest with you, when I read this psalm, I feel like it's a psalm that we should read on our knees. And so, if you're physically able, I mean, if you're going to get down on your knees and you can't get back up, don't do this. <laughs> but if, if it would be good for you to just get on your knees, would you just join me there and let me read the first six verses. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak. And blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we pray that you would make us to know wisdom in our inner hearts during these next few moments and for the rest of our days for your great honor and glory, and for our good. Amen. Amen. There's two main parts of what is going on here, um, and let me just put them up here so that you'll kind of see what they are. You can see very clearly that David owns his sin uh, in these first few verses, and, and when he owns his sin... He, he becomes very desperate in his need for God, and that's because he understands God is a God who loves sinners. Now, if you have a view of you got to be perfect before you come to God, you're not going to get desperate for God, you're going to run from God. But David understood, because of his past experiences with the Lord, that God is a God who loves sinners, and, and when you own your sin, you get desperate for Him. And so we sing that intermingled here. Look at, first of all, and notice how David owns his sin. We see, first of all, that there are four different words that he uses to describe his sin. Not one word will capture it. In fact, probably every word he knows for sin, he uses it here. He calls it, my transgressions, at the end of verse 1. He calls it, my iniquity, in verse 2, and my sin, at the end of verse 2. And at the end of verse 4, he says, done what is evil in your sight, he calls it evil in the sight of God. Now, each of those words have a little different nuance, and uh, we're not going to go through those. Just get the point that, that he just called sin everything and used every word to call it that he knew. That's what happens when you own your sin. You recognize it as a multitude of different things. The second way that we see him owning his sin is he recognizes that sin is deep dirt. If you look at verse 2, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The word for wash here uh, is not a word that, that talks about running water over something and it will be clean. It is a word that means you scrub it You work hard to get the stain out. It's a very specific word that David used. He didn't say, oh, God, just wash me of my sin and I'll be clean. He's saying, my sin is deep. God, scrub it out so that I might be clean. He uses it again a little bit later on in the psalm. Exactly the same word. So sin is seen as as deep dirt. Verse 3, sin is seen clearly when it's owned. There is a clarity to our sin when it is owned. I suspect for the months leading up to this, David would excuse his sin. He would ignore his sin. You know, he would push it back. But man, when you own your sin, there's a clarity to it. And David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I cannot get out of my head that I stayed home and sent my soldiers into battle. I can't get out of my head that I kept looking at her bathing. I can't get out of my head that I found out who she was. I can't get out of my head that I took her, uh, that I went into her, that I tried to cover it up, that I had Uriah put to death. I can't get out of my head my sins. That's something that when a person hasn't owned their sin, they don't have the clarity. They keep pushing it out of their minds. They keep excusing it. They call it other things. But man, when you own your sin, there is a clarity to sin. There's the old song, what? Count your blessings, name them one by one. See what the Lord has done. Count your sins. Name them one by one. Otherwise, you will have no sense of what the loving kindness of God Has done. There is a real sense where it's important for us to own our sins. Otherwise, grace is cheap and love is perceived to be deserved. The fifth thing, or fourth thing, I don't know what it is, is that sin is against God. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Um, When we own our sin, we understand that it is primarily a sin against God. Now, was it a sin against his soldiers and Joab? Yes. Was it a sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Was it a sin against Uriah? Yes. Was it a sin against all those in his household who knew what had happened? Yes. Was it a sin against the nation who suffered from this? Yes. But primarily sin is against God and must be seen that way. I mean, when you get in the tiff in your relationship and in your marriage, you need to see it primarily as a sin against God. That changes a lot of things, right? Because, I mean, the person you got in the tiff with, they're not perfect. But what about him? Wouldn't he have given you the patience? Yes. Wouldn't he have been kind? Yes. Wouldn't he have given words that would build up? Yes. And so, when we own our sin, there's a real clarity that, oh God, you I sinned against. This is an issue between me and you. That's the Christian life. That's life for everybody. When we love somebody, where did that come from? God's love. When we love God, we love our neighbors. When we dismiss God, we dismiss and hurt our people. When we sin against God, we sin against people. However and whatever our relationship with God is, it flows into people. Try as we might to dress it up. David continued to rule as king. He had the same position, but he was not the same leader. And so there's a real sense and understanding that our sin is first and foremost against God. Joseph understood this. Remember Joseph I mean, he had suffered all kinds of injustices. He ends up in Potiphar's house, uh, the big dude in the Egyptian government system, and his wife keeps making advances towards him. And finally, they're alone in the house. She makes the advance. And you remember what Joseph said? He says, listen, there's nobody more important in this house than me because Potiphar, your husband, has given me this. But he says this, how then could I do this great evil and sin against, not Potiphar, against who? God. How could I do this against God? And if anybody could claim about being abused by God, it would have been Joseph. But he got that God was good. And God was up to things. And God was to be worshipped. And he was to be adored. And he wasn't going to sin against God even when it's been forced on him. The last thing that we see about owning our sin here is that sin deserves whatever justice God gives. Look at how this comes out in verse 4 there. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. You know what David's saying? Whatever consequences you give out, you're just in doing that. And there were some significant consequences. Nathan had told him, the sword will never depart from your household. He said, the baby that was conceived will die. He said, what you've done in private with Bathsheba as Uriah's wife, I'm going to have your wives taken publicly before the nation. I'm going to embarrass you. I mean, those are heavy consequences. But you see, when David owned his sin, it wasn't like, that's too harsh, God. It's like, that's lenient, God. That's way less than what I deserve. You see, when we own our sin, there's never a complaint about the consequences. Ooh. There is never a complaint. There's never a blaming of others. And how often do we begin to go down a path, we begin to own our sin, and then the consequences start to be experienced. And we get angry at the consequences, whether they come from God or whether they come from somebody else. That is a red flag that you haven't really owned your sin. If you really owned your sin, if I really own my sin... I will never complain about the consequences, no matter what is dished out towards me. And boy, it's just a grief to watch so many people start to own their sin. And then at a certain point, they get angry and get embittered because it's not right that you're making me do this. It's not right that you're telling me I have to do this. And we could be totally wrong. That's not the point. The point is, you begin the ball rolling. You're the one who could have stopped all of this. Complaining about the consequences of our sin is a dead giveaway. We have not really owned our sin. David owned his sin. And he said, God, you're just in whatever you do. And when his son took over the throne, you don't find David complaining. He understood. He began this ball rolling through these circumstances. And so how do you and I see our sin? This is the way we need to see it. This is the way we need to own it. And it's totally counterintuitive because we would think that owning it like this brings death. No, it brings life. Because a repentant heart like this puts us in the place of the love of God and the restoration of God. This is such an appropriate response when you and I sin. And it drew, uh, drove David to see his desperate need for God and who God is. Look at the way that comes out in these first few verses. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. You know, there's a lot of different ways to to live our lives according to, right? I want you to treat me according to the way I treat you. No, I don't. I want you to treat me the way I deserve to be treated. No, I don't. I want to be treated according to the loving kindness and compassion of God. That's the scale I need. What about you? Because if if I'm treated the way I'm treated, treat other people, huh? It's not gonna go so good for me. If I'm treated the way I deserve to be treated, it's really going south. And that's what sin does, it changes your perspective. Or you say, man, according to your loving kindness and your compassion, God, would you treat me according to that? I know it's undeserved. But would you treat me according to that? And aren't you grateful that God says what? What's He say? Yes. Yes. We read from Psalm 103 earlier. I didn't realize this was part of our earlier worship until going through it with you. Psalm 103, He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. That's the crown I want to wear. How about you? He crowns us even and maybe especially when we own our sin. He says, let me put that crown back on you. The crown of my loving loving kindness and of my compassion. Wash me thoroughly and cleanse me from my sin. Blot out my transgressions. He knew that God was a God who would do that. He was a God who would do that. So, if I'm going to portray this in a picture, this is the way I would portray it. David is in a desert of his own making, and man, God is an abundant, bountiful God with his loving kindness and his compassion and his ability to cleanse sin and blot out sin. And man, he can turn the driest desert into a place that flourishes. Amen? That's what He does. Now, David didn't have the same clarity on this that you and I have on this. As we come to the Lord's table, we understand that the Lord can be compassionate towards us and loving kindness towards us because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did because He went to the desert and He suffered the fullness of the desert under His Father's hand so that we do not have to stay there. We do not have to live there right? He has paid for every one of our sins, past, today, and future. Which doesn't mean we shouldn't own it, we have to own it. So that we can enjoy the loving kindness and the compassion of God. And so when you come to the table in a few moments, just know you know something more clear than David did. You know how God can be loving to you and compassionate to you because he poured out his wrath that your sins deserve upon his only begotten son. So the great question is, one of the great questions is, so why would David do this? Have you ever asked yourself that? When you go down a sin path, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I get involved in that? Why would David, who was so flourishing and seeing victories And everything was firing. Why would he give that up and go down another path? He goes on to tell us in verses 5 and 6. He said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Now, verse 5 is a radical verse in the Old Testament. It does two things that is are rarely done in the old testament very clearly done in the new testament the one thing it does is it says that we all have a sin nature we all are born into this world with a proclivity of sin a rebellion towards god that is natural that will cause us to say god keep your goodness i'm going down my own path that's just part of the deal the other thing it does is it says that that doesn't just be, isn't just given at birth, it goes back to when? What's it say? Conception. When does life begin? Conception. The problem also begins there, too, though. And so David makes it very clear why did I have an enablement mentality, or a, a, a mentality that I deserve to break? Entitlement mentality? Oh, it's there in my heart. It's there in my heart. Why did I keep looking at her? Oh, it's right there in my heart. Why did I try to cover it up? Oh, it's right there in my heart. And so David owns the sinfulness of his own heart. Have you owned the sinfulness of your own heart? It's really important that you do. And everything, I shouldn't say everything, a lot of things in our culture tell us that we are good people until other things happen to us, and that makes us bad. David said, no, I can't blame anybody. This came right out of my heart. It so disturbs me that so much of our counseling today is to blame other people for our sinfulness. So much Christian counseling today will say, oh, well, you're involved in that sinful activity because of the way you were raised or because of this or because of that. Now, it's helpful to understand how sin may be encouraged by those circumstances because it can be encouraged. But until a person owns that it came from their own sinful heart. There is no appreciation for the love of God and what He can do in the heart. It is a deceptive means that keeps the glory and honor upon people and robs God of the glory that He deserves. David owned the own sinfulness of his heart with these very words. And he goes on in verse 6 and says, Behold, notice, pay attention, God, you desire truth in the innermost being. God, you're a God who works in the innermost being. And this is the greatest promise of all, right there in the last part of verse 6. Man, I'd underline this, square it, exclamation point. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. God, you will work in that very place out of which all this junk comes. You will make me to know wisdom in the inner core of my heart because you desire truth in the innermost part of my heart. You desire it, and you make it happen. That's our God, isn't it? He doesn't say, I desire it. Now, you make it happen. That'd be hopeless. He says, I desire it, and I will make you to know wisdom. I will know how to take the truth and realities of who I am and apply it to every situation in the very core of your heart so that you will desire truth in your inner parts so that out of you will come a life of wisdom lived in truth. In other words, let's cut sinful thinking and words and behavior off at the core. This is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who meditates in the Word. What? Day and night they shall be like a tree planted by the waters that brings forth its fruit in its season. That's all of that. That's what Lloyd and Dahl are giving their lives to. Getting the Word out. So people can receive it and reflect upon it. Because what happens if people receive and reflect upon it? They'll live it. I mean, there's a chance then. Man, if you just try to live a sinless life without dealing with the inner core of our hearts, it's hopeless. It's absolutely hopeless. It's like picking rotten fruit off, well, it's like picking apples off of an apple tree. Apple trees are going to produce apples. Why would you expect oranges? God wants to do this work in our inner heart. And so, David owns his own sinful heart, and that makes him for desperate for God to do a work in his own heart. This is where our own personal devotional life comes in. This is where our life with other believers in a small group comes in. This is where being part of a worship service like we've been a part of comes in. All of that is intended to help us to know wisdom in our inner heart so that out of that will come life. Well, the rest of this psalm are different pictures of the spaghetti, if you will, with a lavish amount of God's love and cleansing that go on. And we just don't have the time to go through it. So, I'll leave that for you to read. And for you to let it be your own prayer. As you own your own sinfulness and you own your own sin... And you come to God who is, man, He loves to forgive. He loves to cleanse. He will create a new heart in you. He will do all of that. This morning, we've put the Lord's table around the sanctuary, one up in the back of the balcony. Because I wanted to leave the front clear here. God used Nathan the prophet through a parable to bring Nathan, uh, to bring David to owning his own sin and his own sinfulness. It could very well be that you're here this morning and, and God is using me and Psalm 51 to bring you to a point to own your own sin and your own sinfulness. You've been playing games for a long time. You haven't called sin sin. You haven't recognized it's against God. You're complaining about the consequences. You're just, you're just a, you can't, as the verses go on, you can't be around people who are joyful. They're irritating to you. You can't trust God. I mean, there's a lot of indicators, and they all find their root in the fact that you have not owned your own sin and have not owned your own sinfulness, and thus you're not experiencing the love and kindness and compassion of God in your life. And the Lord's Supper table is a time to remember the love and kindness and compassion of the Lord and to come clean, to own your sin and your sinfulness. Now, some of you have built this into your life, and you may just want to come before you go to one of the lord's table either up front here or wherever you're seated seating seated wherever you are you may just want to name your sins one by one and be reminded of what the lord has done but some of you have not come clean it's always somebody else's fault No, it's not. Own your sin. Own your sinfulness. And let the Lord cleanse you and love on you. So let me pray. Spirit of God, thank you that you desire truth in the innermost hearts. We ask you to give that wisdom. We thank you for your faithfulness. And now we just trust you to shepherd each one of us individually as we come and respond to your invitation to partake of the reminders of how your body was given and broken to pay for our sins and of this cup that is the new covenant in your blood, which means we will only know the loving kindness and compassion of the Father. And so, Lord, I just want to pray for everyone who has not owned Their sin and sinfulness, today would be the breakthrough. And for those of us who have, and as best we know, we're fine, remind us of our sins and sinfulness that we might partake in gratefulness to you for who you are, a God who loves sinners. Thank you for your work in our midst. And so you come as you would feel that the Spirit would want you to come, either down front to kneel in your pew, and then you go to the Lord's Supper table based upon His invitation to partake of this reminder of His great love for you. And so you feel free to come and respond to the Spirit.